Good morning. There we go. Good to be with you on this really special day. I want you to go ahead and take your Bibles and open up to Luke chapter 2. Is where we're going to be in just a minute. Uh, I have an announcement for you. This should not come as any surprise. Today is Christmas Eve. Hope none of you are caught off guard by that. Uh, acknowledging that, I know there are a lot of different things going on in your mind here in this room. Some of you are with just great anticipation. You can't leave gift for tonight because you're, you're Christmas Eve gift opener kind of people. Like tonight, you're going to be opening gifts. Like there's some of you. Who's Christmas Eve opening people? Man, you're the minority, like four of you down here. I, okay. And then some of you just can't wait till tomorrow. You're Christmas Day kind of opening people. That's the rest of you. It's interesting, when Jennifer and I were first married, I came from a background in Unicoi County where we open our gifts on Christmas Eve. Jennifer, not so much, so we kind of had to work through that, and Jennifer won the argument, so we're opening our gifts tomorrow on Christmas Day. That's the way a happy marriage works. So I know there's a lot of anticipation going on in here, but I also know there's a lot of anxiety going on in some of your minds. You're thinking, oh, those final gifts are not wrapped. Uh, I don't know how this is going to work out. You're, you're thinking, and I hope there's no one in here who thinks Amazon can get your gift here on time. It's not happening. That window of opportunity is closed. All right, sorry. You all are just, some of you look really sad. It's a glorious day. It's Christmas Eve. It's a joy to be together here. We're going to walk through this great account in Luke chapter 2, but I want to remind you, uh, the Bible calls us to remember. So what we've been doing as a church family, we've been remembering, we've been looking back to the birth of the Lord Jesus. We know from places like Galatians chapter 4, which says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. We've been looking back and remembering the birth of our King. But remember, we're calling each other to not stop there as a church because the Bible doesn't stop there. We're calling each other in the same way to anticipate. That is, I think probably even more so on the pages of Scripture, we are called not just to look back, but to look forward to the promises of God that are sure and steadfast to his not yet fulfilled. So we're looking ahead to his return. We, and we, we give a definition to anticipate last week. We said to anticipate something is to look forward to as certain. So with the same certainty, we look back to Bethlehem and all that happened with his birth. Listen, as children of God, on the authority of the Word of God, with the same certainty, we look forward to His sure, visible, absolute return to make all things new. Amen? So we remember, we anticipate, we know from Scripture that His return is absolutely promised. We don't know the day nor hour, but here's what we're called to do in Scripture. We're called to wait well, we're in that period between the time he came the first time and the time he's going to return, and we're called to wait well. James 5.8 says, be patient, establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. What does it look like to wait well? 
been talking about that as a church family over the past few weeks. We, we saw several weeks ago, Pastor Daniel led us through Jesus' followers wait with hope. The sure, absolute hope that is in the return of the Lord Jesus. We saw last week we wait with purpose. There's no wasted time in Jesus' delay. If he waits a week, if he waits a month, if he waits another year, there is purpose in that. So we wait with purpose. We saw a few days ago we wait with grace. We wait with grace, remembering everything we've received, everything we will receive, every gift that is promised to us is all because ultimately of the grace of God. Our God lavishly gives to the desperately undeserving. Aren't we glad? And this morning we're going to look at this idea. I'll go ahead and give you your big truth this morning is this. Jesus' followers wait with joy. There is a joy in which we're waiting. I said in the first service, and I think this is true as you read through the pages of Scripture, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have more reason, we have more uh, capacity to be the most joy-filled people on the planet. Amen? Two of you believe that. That was the most joyless response I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, again, man. We of all people have the capacity to be the most joy-filled people on the planet. What does that look like? How does that work its way out in our lives? We're going to see that here in Luke chapter 2. So I'm just going to read this very familiar account. I'm going to read down through about verse 14. These verses are filled with joy. How do we wait with joy? Even as we talk about that this morning, just to get in your business a little bit, it's Christmas Eve 2023, would you say you come in here this morning and your heart is exuding with joy? Why or why not? We'll talk about that a little bit this morning. So Luke 2, beginning in verse 1, and again, very familiar passage of Scripture as we walk through these verses. I'm going to begin here in verse 1. In those days, Luke... The writer is looking back. He's remembering. It's what we're doing. We're remembering. He says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered. Now, your Bible may say tax, depending on what translation you're following. The ESV says registered. The idea is, under the Roman world at this time, Roman is, Rome is in control, a decree went out in their census. Everyone's going to be counted. And in their counting, there will be a subsequent taxation. They go together. There's not contradiction. So this order goes out in the Roman world from Caesar Augustus, verse 2. This was the first census or registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. That's the region. The Romans referred to this region as Syria. Verse 3. And all went to be registered each to his own town. Families, you know your verse, you know this, but when you read this, remember, for some families, this meant days and days and days of travel to go from where they had moved to to the town from which they were born. That's what's going on here in verse 3, verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, that's a region, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, another region, 
to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was the house and lineage of David. Had to go back to the town of his birth. Bethlehem. Verse 5, to be registered with Mary. There's Mary. His betrothed. We don't use that word a lot in our common vernacular. Betrothal, what does that mean? Betrothal is to legally pledge oneself to be married. So they're betrothed. They have legal obligations to one another. It was binding. It was not yet marriage, but it was still legally binding. So they are betrothed. Verse 5 says, and oh, by the way, who is with child? Mary's, as the King James says, great with child. Very pregnant. Not of Joseph, but of the Holy Spirit of God. We know that. So at this point, remember, we, we see different movies and we see different pictures maybe about Mary. Mary th- this means then that Mary and Joseph are going to travel 70 from Galilee to Judea, which at minimum is a 70-mile journey. So just get this in your mind when you read this account. That would mean leaving from here and traveling. The, the, the airport that's on the other side of Asheville, 70 miles, oh, by the way, on a donkey, not in a Honda Odyssey minivan. She's pregnant. Mary's got some rough days ahead of her. 70-mile journey. Verse 6. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes or cloths. Not a phrase again that we use. Swaddling, the idea is they didn't have a lot. So they took the cloths they had and they would rip them in shreds. And they would use those shredded or swaddling cloths to wrap baby Jesus to keep him warm. They laid him in a manger, verse 7, because there was no place for them in the inn. Evidently, the towns were so crowded because of the census being taken, there was no place for them. So they take baby Jesus and they lay him in this feeding trough because there was no place for them in the inn. I'll stop right there for just a second. So we know this. You think of this just as a Christmas story. Here's the point. This is the fulfillment of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of a promise that the Messiah is coming. Jesus the Messiah has now been born. Incredible reality. So the scene is going to shift from the manger and Mary and Joseph and all that's going on there. And Luke is now going to shift the scene to the fields outside of Bethlehem. You pick it up in verse 8. He says, at the same time, or in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, doing what shepherds do. Verse 9, and an angel, just one at this point, just one angel appeared, or the angel of the Lord appeared to them. Now, stop right there for just a second. I think you know this. As one angel appears to these shepherds out at night in the field, and the Bible says, and they were horrified. King James, if some of you revert to the King James, how you learned this, they were sore afraid. <laughs> really afraid. Why so much fear? 
In other words, they have mega fear. One of the reasons they have mega fear, it says, And the glory of the Lord shone round about them, verse 9, and they were filled with mega fear. Why so much fear? A couple reasons. One we'll talk about now, one we'll talk about later. One, if an angel of the Lord appears to you, you will be horrified because they're not little cuddly, you know, cotton balls floating around. These are majestic, divine beings sent from God Almighty. Here's these shepherds doing their thing out in the middle of the night. Wham! An angel shows shows up, they're horrified. It's not the only reason they're horrified. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Verse 10, and the angel said to them, fear not. It's one of the greatest statements in this whole passage. Those who are filled with great fear, who have every reason to be filled with great fear, the angel says, hey, you don't have to be afraid. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, mega joy. Whatever this announcement is that's being proclaimed by these angels, he says, look, your mega fear can now be replaced with mega joy. Mega joy. For unto you is born this day, verse 11, who is city of David, Bethlehem, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Stop right there. What's the sign? The sign is the reality that this promised king in his not in a palace, he's not seated on his throne, this promised king in his humility, you'll find him in a feeding trough. That's very uncommon, (laughs) indicating this is a once-in-all-of-history kind of birth. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel. Remember, one angel, now there's a bunch of angels. There was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. What a passage of Scripture. Now, here's your big truth. I gave it to you before. This is kind of going to guide our thoughts for the next few minutes. Is this. Jesus' followers wait with joy. In our waiting, in our anticipating, is our life characterized by joy? See, we sing about joy, right? We just sang a great song about joy. It's easy for us to sing about joy. We talk a lot about joy, especially this time of year. We send Christmas cards with joy. We we talk about joy. The Bible speaks extensively about joy. Did you know that? 179 times in your Bible the word joy appears. 161 times the word rejoice appears. I don't know what your viewpoint on God's word is. This is a book that is filled with a message of joy. As we define joy this morning, maybe this will help you. Kind of a little working definition. You you can define it this way. It seems to be the way the Bible defines joy. The settled, the settled, glad, 
contented state of the soul. Let me say that again. Joy as it's defined in Scripture is the settled, glad, contented state of your soul. It involves contentment. It involves well-being. It involves satisfaction. It usually is not connected with circumstances or things that can change. It is most often rooted in that which does not change. Joy. So I'll ask you again for you to be pondering and thinking about, even as we continue the passage, when you came in here this morning on Christmas Eve 2023, was joy exuding from your soul? Or were the cares of the world and the anxieties of the world kind of washing all that out? Or was it possible that you came in here and joy is like a fleeting thought for you, something you could only dream of walking in this contentedness of soul, this settled gladness. It's like, no way, man, I've never known that. Maybe it's because you're seeking for joy in a place that can never give joy. So as we read through this account this morning, let, let me remind you of a few things about joy. One of them is this, that the Bible unashamedly connects joy to a right relationship with God. The Bible's very clear from the beginning to end that this idea of joy, lasting, enduring, stable, contentment, satisfaction, wholeness, is directly connected to a right relationship with God. Let me just give you some examples. These are not on the screen. I'll just read these. Psalm 63, 11, but the king will rejoice in God. Psalm 32, 11, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you who are up at those hearts. Psalm 70, verse 4, let those who seek you, O Lord, rejoice and be glad in you couple more, Nehemiah 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 10. Nehemiah says, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your, anybody know? Strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Habakkuk 3.18. Everybody reads Habakkuk on Christmas, right? Well, we do. Habakkuk 3.18. Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice. In the God of my salvation. And just to be clear, the Bible unashamedly connects this kind of joy to a right relationship with God. And for those who know the Lord here this morning, it even takes it a step further and says joy is not just something that passively happens. There is a seeking of this joy in the lives of a believer as well. Paul said Philippians 4.4, rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. There's a pursuit of it. Galatians 5.22 says, but the fruit of the Spirit, God's Spirit in us, the very Spirit of Jesus Himself, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. You know what's next? Joy. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of these things. All of these are ultimately the character of Jesus within us. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus talked more about joy than anybody. 
If you go back and you read the accounts in the gospel of the days and hours leading up to his crucifixion, he is talking at great length about the joy set before him and to his disciples about the joy that is to be theirs. He says, for example, John 15, 11, the words of Jesus, These things I have spoken to you. This is an incredible verse. That my joy, he says, may be in you to his joy then and his disciples today, and that your joy may be full. Wow. You want a verse to pray going into 2024? You want a verse to meditate on going into the brand new year? Jesus says this, these words I have written to you, I've entrusted to you my very word, that his very joy may characterize your life. And, and he says, my joy, and I'm going to give it to you just in a little bit meager measure. Is that what he says? That your joy may be, what's the word? Jesus desires for his followers his very joy to be experienced in fullness. And he says, you find that in the truth of my word as you seek me in my word. Incredible reality. So the Bible connects joy to our right relationship with God. Calls us to pursue this kind of joy as followers of Jesus Christ. So in Luke 2, I want to go back there. I'm going to give you just a few big ideas really quick this morning. In Luke chapter 2, there is much rejoicing. In fact, all that's going on, says there's a message. It's good news of great joy that's given here in this passage. So let's dig in together for just a few minutes and try to figure out, okay, how can we wait well? How can we find our source of joy in these passages? Go back to verse 1 really quick. I'm going to give you first big idea. Verse 1 says, in those days, this decree goes out from Caesar Augustus. Verse 2, this was the first registration under the governor of Syria. All went to be registered, each to his own town. This is important. Luke goes to great detail here to tell you specific things. You say, I'm not a geography major. I don't really care who the governor was. I don't care about the place. Well, if you know your Bible, you understand this. The Bible is the living word of God for the Bible, mouth of God. Amen? But the Bible always ties itself to real-life human history that can be proven and disproven. These are historical realities. And the reason Luke gives you these things is because the things that are happening here have been prophesied for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. He says, Mary and Joseph go to a place called Bethlehem. Joseph went up from Galilee, verse 4, from a town of Nazareth. Why Nazareth? Why does that matter? Because it was promised that the one that would be born, born would be a Nazir, or a, a root is the idea, or from Nazareth, prophesied hundreds of years before. Well, it goes to a town which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the lineage of David to be registered with Mary. And you just read those as mindless facts. No, every one of those appears to be something that's really important. Here's the declaration. Here's what I want you to see. Here's your first big idea. In our waiting, we rejoice in God's faithfulness. That's what this story is declaring to us. 
Humanly speaking, humanly speaking, Mary and Joseph travel to Bethlehem where Jesus is born because of an imperial decree. But we have the benefit of Scripture to back up and say, even the heart of the emperor, with every channels of water in the hand of the Lord, he was directing every detail exactly as he has promised. Even the emperor of Rome. What does that mean? That means in our waiting, we can rejoice in the faithfulness of God. In God's providence, all of this was in perfect fulfillment to what he had promised centuries earlier. Example. Micah 5.2, speaking of Bethlehem, prophesied again. You're talking about 600 years earlier before the birth of Jesus. But you, O Bethlehem, you who are too little to be known among the clans of Judah... This is a little backside. There's a in the wall of the city of Bethlehem. This is like Irwin. Nobody knows about Irwin. What's in Irwin? There's a lot in Irwin, but anyway. Why would anyone promise for the king of the world to be born in a place like Bethlehem? Micah says, You who are too little to be counted among the clans of Judah, the larger region, from you, O Bethlehem, shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient of days. And now you read this in Luke, and Luke is putting the pieces together for you to say, yes, there was involved an emperor, yes, there was involved a governor, yes, there was involved an innkeeper, yes, there was involved <laughs> distant family members, yes, there was involved a census, yes, there was involved travel, yes, there was involved all of these things that happened. Luke is declaring this, every single event happened just as God Almighty intended it to be. What's our takeaway? In our waiting, we can rejoice in God's absolute faithfulness. Question. We know that Mary knew her scriptures, and Mary evidently was a woman of God, and she knew the prophecies to a degree. But do you not think there were moments in the life of Mary and Joseph where they looked at one another and they said, what in the world is going on here? You want me to ride a donkey for 70 miles to go to Bethlehem? Anybody ever got an argument on a road trip with your family? Anybody just had it? <laughs> do you think there were moments... That they got there and there was no room for them in the inn. And there was no place for them to stay. And Mary looks at Joseph and said, didn't each other? And said, at Google, I mean, there's no place available. And they looked at each other and said, this is a mess. How's this going to turn out? The answer is, of course, yes. And the point is, you and I have the benefit of looking back now, and we remember, and we see this, and we know how all the pieces were currently or were working together for God's glory according to His providence. But in that moment, you had to know there were moments for Joseph and Mary, everything felt like it was unraveling. Everything felt like it was out of control. It was chaotic. It was random. God, are you, are you in this or not? 
One of the things for us as we walk through this Advent is this big idea that in our waiting, we are able to rejoice in God's absolute faithfulness to His children, to you and to me, even when it seems random, even when it seems chaotic, even when things seem like they're unraveling. And just know that the banner over your life is the faithfulness of God. The providence of God, we see that here in this account. There's a second reason for us to rejoice. Just kind of keep reading here. Verse 8. Not only God's faithfulness. Let me show you something else really quick. Verse 8. We, we shift now out to the scene where the shepherds are. And it says in the same region there were sh- shepherds out in the field. Keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, I think we've talked about this before. This is hugely important. Of all the themes, for whatever reason, this is one of the themes through the Christmas story that just grips my heart every time I read it. So the scene is going to go from the birth of the Messiah out into the fields around Bethlehem to a bunch of shepherds. Now, who were the shepherds? You've heard this before. You know a little bit. If you haven't, this may be eye-opening to you. The shepherds, to put it bluntly, were deadbeats. (laughs) The shepherds were the criminals say. They, they were men of lowly reputation. They were the swindlers. They were the lowest of the low of society. And the scene of the birth of Jesus gives a large account to the message of the birth of the king coming to the shepherds first. Incredible. In fact, one Jewish commentator said this. There is no more disreputable occupation than that of a shepherd. You just don't get any lower. That's why if you understand that background, you come to verse 9 and you're intended to drop your jaw and go, incredible grace of God. Verse 9, and the angel of the Lord appeared to them. Them? Of all the people in Judea that are going to hear the announcement that the child has been born, the angel goes to them. And the glory of the Lord, middle of verse 9, shone around them. Them? And they were filled with mega fear. Remember, we talked about that before. Why were they filled with such fear? Two reasons, at least, maybe more. One reason, you have an encounter with an angelic being, it's a fearful thing. You know why else they were fearful? They were fearful because they knew who they were and they knew they were deserving of judgment. They knew the messenger from heaven was wicked. They knew if this is a messenger from heaven, <laughs> if this is a divine being showing up here tonight and, we, and we're here, this is not going to turn out well for us. Because they understood they were poor in spirit. They knew they had nothing to offer. 
They were deserving a judgment. And that's why verse 10 means so much. And the angel said to them, and this was the last thing they expected to hear, fear not. Fear not. For behold, verse 10, I bring you. If you write in your Bible, you. Good news of great joy that shall be for, another key word, all people. Shepherds, you mean us? Yeah. Good news. Great joy that in the grace of God, the undeserving who are worthy of judgment receive grace and the announcement that a Savior is born for you. Who first hears the announcement that God has been born in the flesh? Kings? Nope. Religious leaders? The Pharisees? Nope. Those of lowly reputation and those who knew they had nothing to offer, those who knew they were deserving of judgment, and the mercy of God is poured out in their lives. Oh, by the way, you and I are most like in the story of Jesus, the shepherd. That's us. I got nothing. I got nothing to offer. I got no righteousness to bring on my own. The only hope is that the grace of God is poured out lavishly to the desperately undeserving. And that's me, and that's you, and that's the shepherds. 11, verse 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Second big idea quickly is this, in our way. We rejoice in God's favor. This is God's favor, beloved. You see God's favor woven into this account over and over and over. But I don't know if you see it anywhere as stark as these criminals, these deadbeats, these guys who weren't looking for a Messiah. I assure you, most of them probably didn't know the prophecies. They received the word that a Savior had been born. The good news comes to them and replaces mega fear with mega joy. By the way, the fact that you're sitting in a church and the fact that you were born where you were born and the fact that you've grown up and you're here today and you're hearing the message of the gospel and the good news that Jesus is born, he died, he rose again as your sin bearer, that is the grace of God because we don't deserve any of that. Good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. Incredible. So we wait in joy. We wait and we rejoice in God's faithfulness. We wait and we rejoice in God's favor. And finally, last, let me just show you one final thing, and we'll be done as our time's coming to a close. Look back at Luke 10, I'm sorry, Luke 2, and look at verse 10. One more thing. So remember, we've been looking back. We've been remembering. And now with Luke and some other passages, we're going to look forward. And the angel said to them, fear not, speaking to the shepherds, I bring you good news of great joy. This day for all people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David, listen to this, a Savior, who is Christ, who is the Lord. Stop right there. 
I imagine those shepherds had no idea all that was, all that was bound up in those titles and those names and those references to Jesus. Born to you today, a Savior, a Christ. Born to you today is a, is a Messiah, Christ. You know, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. That's not the boy. It's his title. He's the promised one. He's the anointed one. Declare that to the shepherds. He is Lord. The word Lord means master. The, the word Lord could be translated from the idea of the covenant name of God himself is given in the Old Testament. Could be the idea here of one who will rule the master. And I think it's all of those bound up. But imagine the shepherds hearing those titles, master, Lord, Messiah, Savior, Redeemer. And they make their way to Bethlehem. They make their way to that feeding trough. And they look down and there's this little baby in swaddling clothes, helpless, no crown, no throne, no scepter, no kingdom. And they say, really? And the point is, as we anticipate, we first look back. And those shepherds could have said something like, I don't see a crown. I don't see a kingdom. I don't see a scepter. I don't see a throne. I don't see authority. I don't see power. And Luke is saying, not yet. But there is a day coming when this promised one who came in humility and came in weakness will rule and reign over the nations. So hold on. I'm going to read. Flip over to Philippians chapter 2 very quickly. I'm going to read two passages and we're going to close. Paul helps us connect these dots. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Paul's going to look back, and then the apostle Paul's going to look forward. He says, Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who, speaking of Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Grasp, verse 7, but emptied himself like taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Paul looks back. In humility, never ceasing to be God, never ceasing to be all that he was, existing forever, laying aside some of the privileges of being God, he takes on flesh, being born in the likeness of men, verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even a cross-type death, or even the death of a cross. He would then go to the cross, the message of the gospel. Verse 9, now Paul is going to begin to look forward. He's going to anticipate. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that future, at the name of Jesus, future, Every knee should or will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We wait with joy. We rejoice in God's faithfulness. We rejoice in his favor. Here's your last big idea. In our waiting, we rejoice anticipating our Lord's return. 
with the same conviction that we look back to his birth and all that we wanted with absolute certainty we look ahead to that one who came will one day rule the nations and make all things new and set all things aright and it is that that we fix our joy on we wait and our joy is rooted in something absolute now Flip to the last passage we're going to look at. I want you to take your Bibles and flip over to Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 6. I'm going to ask the team just to come and look and begin to play. I'm going to read these verses over you, and we're going to conclude as we look forward. We're not finished, so don't check out. The Apostle John, disciple of Jesus, is now going to write, What was revealed to him of our certain future. Verse 6. He says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. Like the roar of many waters and like the sound of many peals of thunder. Crying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. John then, to those that he's writing this to, verse 7 says, Let us rejoice. Let us find our joy in the sure reality that our King is going to return in all His glory. And we who know Him will return with Him and be like Him. And we will see Him just as He is. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Skip on down, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened. Behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns or diadems. And he had his name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name which is called the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen the pure were following him on white horses. That seems to be the redeemed, the saints. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword by which he will strike down the nations. He will rule with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings. Lord of lords. And Paul says at that point, all will bow a knee to the Lord and all will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we close, we wait with joy because our God's faithful. We wait with joy because of His favor. We wait with joy because we anticipate his absolute sure return. Historians tell us that those in the early church thousands of years ago, because of this promise, they would greet one another with a saying that was a promise of hope and it was a a word of encouragement. They would greet one another and they would say, Maranatha, Maranatha. Maranatha meant, Lord, come quickly. 
And it says that as they did that, it was anticipation of the fullness and the fulfillment of all that they had put their hope in. And it was an expression of the source of their great joy. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. Father, we praise you for your promise. Praise you for your favor. We praise you for your faithfulness. God, may we be people who exude great joy. Because we know the source of great joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.